You are listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more content and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. good to be here with you today. The text we're going to dive into is going to be from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And this is going to be the first of a two-parter. So today, we're going to kind of set the stage and talk about sort of the foundational issues going on here. And then next week, we will continue with speaking of riches and the danger of riches and possessions. And this is the famous passage where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. But this morning, we're going to be in Mark 10, just verses 17 through 22. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Mark 10, beginning at verse 17. It goes like this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is a challenging word to us this morning. But I pray that as we dive into this text, that your word would do its work, that your Holy Spirit would be present, God, to to sever joints and marrow and, and to pinpoint to pinpoint the problem, God, however hard it may be for us to look at. God, I ask above all that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a quote. And you can tell me whether you agree or disagree with this. Very rarely do the best things in life fall into our laps. Instead, we have to work for them. Agree? Disagree? I heard somebody out there. Ellie, is that you? Okay. So not too long ago, a few weeks ago actually, as many of you know, I was on a trip to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. It's this area right between Canada and Minnesota, and hands down, the best quadrant of the state, objectively speaking, of course. And uh, we, as a, as a kid, when I was growing up in high school, we would go on these trips to the Boundary Waters every single summer, and uh, this time of year, it's especially beautiful, right? You get the North Shore Drive, and the leaves are changing, and it's just amazing. I have a brother who lives in Duluth, so I drove the three hours up there, and then We continued as a group. We got all of our gear together and distributed the loads and then headed up 
uh, the rest of the way to Grand Marais, where we took the Gunflint Trail up north all the way to Clearwater Lake. And we stayed at the Clearwater Lodge, and from there we put it on Bearskin Lake, we went to Duncan Lake, uh, we were on Mountain Lake for a couple of nights, Rose Lake, which is absolutely beautiful, Rove, Watap, and then we came back again on Clearwater. Now, the thing you got to know about my brother is that he is hardcore. Like when he, he doesn't do anything halfway, he's going 150%, especially when it comes to things like camping and backpacking. And so I kind of have to recalibrate my mindset a little bit when I'm out with him. Cause when he says things like, Oh, it's just a little three mile paddle, a nice, a nice, easy little three mile paddle. Uh, the words nice and easy are not words that the rest of the people in the group would necessarily use to describe that experience. Right. And so he's, he's, he's pretty hardcore, and, and he, has this, uh, he has this kind of mentality. He's, he's said this to me a number of times. He said, you know, if you want to get to the best views, if you want to get to the best overlooks, the most scenic places, you got to hike. you got to go off the beaten path, and you gotta, you got to pound, you pound your way through the woods and, and slash your way through the underbrush. And, you know, when you finally get there, but you're, you're, it'll be beautiful, but you are going to have to work for it. And so that was the case on this trip. One of the days on Rose Lake, we got the whole group together, which was really something because we had a couple of senior citizens on the trip and uh, they held their own. I was, I was really impressed. My dad and a buddy of his came with too, but we, we went on this kind of a difficult hike. It wasn't terrible, but we had some topography, some hills to go up. And uh, when we, we got there, we got up to the scenic overlook. And this is it. This is on Rose Lake. So you can see it here. And, and it's beautiful, and it's this, this wonderful sight, and we had the chance to take a number of pictures with the whole group together. So this idea that we have to work hard in order to get something in return is the default operating system of the human heart. So if we want to get good views, we have to work for it. We have to put our blood, sweat, and tears in order to arrive there, and when we finally do, it will be worth it. Now, this way of, of thinking and of operating is a transactional way of living life. What do I mean by that? Well, what is a transaction? Well, when you swipe your credit card at the grocery store, you are giving money in return for some apples or some bananas or some milk. Whatever you're purchasing, you are getting that in return. So it's this idea that in order to get something, I have to give something First, And by me giving something, that is what makes it possible for me to receive something in return. So kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back sort of thing. And there's good reason for this. This is the way of the world in pretty much every other sphere of life, right? Like if you are at your job, you have to put in your 40 hours a week plus. You have to build up your client list. You have to show profits at the end of the year. You give all of this and then in return, you get a paycheck. This is how it works. Same goes for school, right? You have to study diligently enough. If you get a good enough score on this test, you will go on to the next grade. Or if you uh, score so high on your ACT, maybe that will enable you to receive entrance into the college of your choice. So there's this give and take kind of thing. But in this morning's test, Jesus takes this whole transactional way of operating, this transactional framework, and he smashes it to pieces, and he says, I have something better for you. 
So that's where we're headed today. Our text this morning is the story of the rich young ruler. And we don't know that he's a ruler from this text, but from the accompanying gospel accounts, we do know that he was a ruler and he's very well off. So for many of you, this may be a familiar passage. Uh, but in my mind, when I, when I hear this, you know, this phrase, rich young ruler, that sounds kind of vague. So let's give him a name this morning. Let's call him Sebastian. Sebastian, that's a good name for a rich, maybe trust fund type, Wall Street or a hotshot lawyer kind of person. So we've got Sebastian. And this encounter he has with Jesus, it comes on the heels of Jesus teaching the crowd. Jesus has been moving throughout the region of Judea. He's been teaching the crowds. And just before this, he was talking about the little kids. You know, he says, let the little children come to me. For to such is the king, belong the kingdom of heaven. You have to become like a little child. These kids who appear to have nothing, they are the ones who gain everything. That's the teaching that comes immediately prior to this. And so we get a very stark contrast. As Sebastian runs up to Jesus in all sincerity, and he gets down on his knees, and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we jump on him for this sort of way of, of questioning, this would have been a very common question for students to ask their rabbis, as a matter of fact. So there's nothing particularly strange about this. But you hear what's going on in that question. You hear this transactional way of operating going on. He says, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life. Like, what do you want from me, God? I'll give you something. You give me something in return. But notice, zoom in on that one word, inherit, right? What must I do to inherit? How does an inheritance work? Well, if I were to walk up to you in your family and say, Galen, I would like to be included in your will. What do I have to do? Galen is going to look at me and tell me to get lost. And, well, he should. Because I'm not part of that family. But if I were to come up to my own family, my own parents, and say, Mom and Dad, what do I have to do to get into your will? Like, I want to be an inheritor. What do I have to do? They would look at me also with shock and be like, you're our son. You're a cello. This is how this works. There's nothing you do in order to gain an inheritance. You're simply born into it, right? So we can see this whole transactional way of operating at work here. And not only is that our default operating system, listen to this, that is the only operating system of every other world religion, whether that's a capital R or a lowercase r. If you do something for God, he will give you something in return. You follow the five pillars of Islam, you will receive, possibly, you don't know, but you will receive salvation and you will receive um, these gifts. Or we think of Buddhism, for example, where there is this hope of attaining enlightenment. And, uh, you know, you work to release yourself from the ties of this world. And if you work hard enough, if you do enough, you will get there. Or Hinduism, for example, where your goal is to become one uh, 
And to do that, sufficient meditation is required. So you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. That's the way of every single religion that has ever existed. Of the thousands of them, that is the one common theme that ties them all together. And now the idea that we can give something in order to get something from God, that belies another presupposition that is really incredibly prideful. And it's this. I must have something pretty good to offer God. Like if he's going to give me eternal life, I really must think that what I have to give him in order to get that must be pretty darn valuable. I must be capable of good. I must be a good person. Now, before we talk about that, let's back up just a second because verse 18 is a little strange and it can kind of throw us off here. This is Jesus' response to Sebastian when he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you'll notice that when Jesus responds to questions, oftentimes in the Gospels, he doesn't come at it like at a 90-degree angle. He always kind of subverts the question by asking another question or, or turning the tables. And that's what he does here. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, what's going on there? Well, we would read that and, and maybe think, well, shouldn't he be like patting Sebastian on the back? Because Sebastian just called him good. And Jesus just said, no one is good except for God. So didn't he just call him God? But if you back up, you see that how does Sebastian address him? He addresses him as teacher. He addresses him as good teacher. There's no Lord. There's no God. There's no sign anywhere that he's recognizing the divinity of Jesus Christ. And this transactional way of operating actually betrays the fact that he does not believe God is merciful. He doesn't. So there's no indication of, of trust here in God. The text goes on. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He's a pretty good guy. Do not murder? Check. Do not commit adultery? Check. Do not lie? Check. He's kind of killing it at this whole obedience thing. Notice, though, the specific commandments that are there, that are listed. Because these are second table of the law kinds of things. You remember there's the first table of the law, which is the first three commandments. These have to do with our relationship with God. And the next commandments, four through ten, have to do with our relationship with one another. And these specific commandments he's giving there, that he's saying, yep, I've done that, done that, done that. These are from the second table of the law. In other words, these are kind of the easy commandments. Do not murder. Well, the reality is that most people are going to go through their entire life without physically committing a murder. Most people are going to go through their life without committing adultery. And so Sebastian thinks he's doing pretty good. And so do we. You see, the moral of his story is not don't be like Sebastian. Don't be like this rich young ruler. The moral of this story is I am 
I am the man. I am that guy. My heart is just like his. Because there is this view in our world, it's very prevalent that human beings at their core are very good people. We are capable of immense good. I'm a good citizen. I'm a, I'm a great Christian. I teach Sunday school. I, I tithe 10% every Sunday. I do all of these, these good things. And man, it is entirely possible for me to obey all of God's law. It's entirely possible for me to be good. We think we are capable of a lot. We think we have checked the boxes. We give to charity. We're kind. We, we smile and, and we're happy when we check out at the uh, at Fleet Farm with the, giving a good vibe to the person, to the cashier there. And this is a very prevalent view that human beings are by nature good. I'm going to read you an article from CNN. And this is very telling because it reveals this unspoken Assumption. It says, all people are inherently good. When we hear about bad things happening, especially when lives of many are lost or damaged at the hands of a few, we need to remind ourselves that people are generally good. We are hardwired for goodness. The vast majority of people, when faced with simple, clear, ethical choices, choose good over bad and even good over neutral. In other words, we are fairly confident in our self-righteousness. But now we come to what I think is the best part of this text this morning. As I was reading through it, this is the part that jumped out at me because it's, it seems so counterintuitive. This is what Jesus says after Sebastian has told him, check, check, check. I've done all this stuff, right? This is someone very confident in their self-righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone came up to me that confident in all of the good they had been doing, my reaction would probably be something along the lines of anger or judgment or frustration, maybe laughter. Like, this is ridiculous. But listen to Jesus' response here. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus' response to people overly self-confident in their own goodness is first and foremost, always love and mercy. And you can almost picture Jesus here. It's, it's as if he's, he's taking this rich young ruler aside, maybe in the way that we would take a little kid aside who's just very confident in, in what they're doing, but totally unearned confidence, right? And he, he takes them aside and he says, look, whatever comes next, because the hammer of the law is going to fall hard next. Whatever comes next, you need to know that I love you. You need to know that what happens next is for your good. And that even when God disciplines us, he does it out of love. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so Jesus does this. And and then next, he brings down this hammer of the law really hard. He says, one thing you lack, 
Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Go, sell what? Everything. Not some things. Not most things, not 80%, not a certain proportion of, of what you have. Everything. See, this is the cost of discipleship. It's not just our, our stuff, not just giving our wealth or our possessions, but the inward attitudes and thoughts of our hearts. Not only obeying, but wanting to obey. James Edwards says this. He says, the greatest enemies to faith and obedience are self-satisfaction and pride. You wouldn't think that. The greatest enemies to faith and obedience. It's not apathy. It's not atheism. It's self-satisfaction and pride. And nothing removes those bulwarks more effectively than poverty. See, the one thing that he needed... Spiritual poverty was the one thing he did not have. And so what's going on here, what is being revealed to us, is that it's not about the money. It is not about the possessions. This is a heart issue. See, money and wealth and possessions in and of themselves are not bad. In fact, throughout Scripture, signs of God's blessing are often money and possessions and wealth. So the problem isn't those in and of itself. The problem is the way that our hearts grasp those so tightly, kind of white knuckle our way through life and hold on to them for all that they are worth. This is the first commandment issue. You shall have no other gods before me. Do we value and treasure Jesus Christ above all? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. Augustine says this. He says, Through the overpowering love of what was valueless, he lost the possession of what was of greatest price. Through the overpowering love of what was valueless, he lost possession of what was of greatest price. See, once again, our desire to cling wholeheartedly to the things of this world, good things, things like family and friends and, and relationships, and yes, wealth, they cause us to lose sight of the one priceless thing, and that is Jesus. So in the end, it turns out that this cost of discipleship is so high that we don't have the currency to pay it. But thankfully, there is one who did. I want you to read with me in your Bibles. We'll have this up on the screen. This is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And I'm going to ask you to read this with me, if you have it. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It goes like this. Go ahead and, and follow along with me. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself nothing. You see, Jesus didn't lack anything. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they were perfect. He enjoyed a perfect relationship, perfect fellowship within the Godhead. He didn't need us. Instead, he chose to love us. He chose to leave all of that behind, all of the riches and the treasures of heaven. He left the kingdom of God behind to be born to a manger, to walk on dusty desert paths, to be crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal for you and for me. Let's press the, the rewind button on the Gospels and let's go back toward the very beginning, the temptation of Jesus. This is one of the inaugurating events of Jesus' ministry. And, and Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry at this point. So Satan says to him, why don't you just tell these stones to become bread? And Jesus responds, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Second temptation, Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, throw yourself down from here, for he will command his angels concerning you. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus says, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And finally, the third temptation, after all of those have failed, Satan takes him up onto a mountain. Overlooking all of the lands, all of the kingdoms, he sees everything. He can have all of these riches, all of these possessions, if he will only bow down to Satan. What does Jesus say? Away from me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Jesus leaves everything behind to go after the lost sheep. While I was in seminary, I had my cage rattled a number of times in a good way. This is part of what seminary does is it knocks the, the supports out from under you and then it rebuilds you. But that has to happen. It could be a, a painful process sometimes. But I remember I, I was listening to a, a professor there and we were talking about uh, the song I surrender all. You familiar with this song? I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. And I'd grown up singing this song and thinking, man, isn't this a wonderful picture of what we have to do for, for God? Like we leave it all behind, right? You got you to surrender everything in order to follow Jesus. And he looked at me and he was kind of like, yeah, but have you ever done that? He said, in all of human history, there's only been one who has left everything behind. 
There's only one person who has ever surrendered all. And it's not me. Christ surrendered all. Christ surrendered all. So, Jesus left it behind. He left everything behind because of how much he valued and treasured you. He checked all of the boxes. He blotted out all of the columns in our spreadsheets, good, bad. He blotted it all out in his own blood because of his great love. And the only requirement, if there's only one thing you remember from this morning, this would be a good thing to remember. The only requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God is empty hands. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Whatever spiritual currency that you plan to offer God in exchange for his goodness, he's not interested because the price has already been paid and it's on the house. So back to our question at the beginning. Is it true that the best things in life fall into our laps? Don't fall into our laps or we have to work for them? Well, I have another scenic overlook I want to show with you here today. This is in Hawaii. My wife and I took our, our honeymoon there. And while we were on this island of Hawaii, which is amazing, it's, uh, it's Hawaii is fun because it's just it's little. It feel, the whole island feels like a small town. There's like one road that goes around the whole thing. And while we were there, we took this thing called the Waimea Canyon Drive. We went up to what is known as like the most beautiful site on the island. But we didn't have to hike. We got in the rental car. It was a Mustang. Got in a Mustang, put on the air conditioning, turned up the radio, and drove up slowly up this winding path. Stopped for dragon fruits along the way, which you would think would be a little more exciting and spicy or something than it actually is. It's good. But we stopped and we had some dragon fruit and continued our way up there. And we weren't sure if we were going to see it because apparently there's oftentimes clouds that come in in the afternoon. But as we got there, the clouds parted. And we had this beautiful view down the mountain into the, into the bay. We saw everything. And that's what you're, you're taking a look at here. And all that we had to do was to get in that air-conditioned car <laughs> and drive there. You see, in the end, it turns out that the very best things in life are not earned, but freely given. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor KJ. O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com 
As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.